Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And we're really honored to have with us today a, a dear friend of ours, Alyssa Ayers, a leading voice researcher and writer on nation building in India and Pakistan, and one of the most in-demand commentators on South Asia's future. I know you've been traveling all over the world. Uh, you've got a new book. Uh, it's really incredible. And Alyssa's bio is is really outstanding, but she was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia. She's published several books worked in both the nonprofit and private sectors, currently senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. And her newest book just recently came out. It's titled, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. Alyssa, welcome to Tea Leaves. Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm very, very happy to be able to join you both. Well, we're excited. And we're, we want to get into your book. Um, but I really want to ask you how you even got started in this area and your interest in India and South Asia. And you start off the book about your college semester uh, in India. And I just want to ask you, tell us a little bit about kind of how this even started, where you grew up and, and why, why India? Why did this become such a focus for you? Wow, that's about 10 questions all yeah. in one. So where did I grow up? I grew up uh, outside Detroit, um, a daughter of a GM lifer. Uh, my late father worked for General Motors for more than 30 years. Uh, and I went away to the East Coast for college. I went to Harvard. And during my junior year, when many people did a college semester or a college year abroad program, I decided to do one as well. And I thought it would be really interesting to go somewhere other than the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. which is where a whole lot of people go mm -hmm. uh, from the United States. And so I, I looked around and I found um, a college semester program. I wasn't sure if I wanted to spend the whole year abroad. And I ended up traveling to India for the fall semester of uh, the academic year 1990-91. And so you're right, that is how I opened this book, in part, uh, not only to, to, to relay that story for readers, but also because that was a really, really tumultuous political and economic moment for India. And that was my first exposure to the country at a time when you know, I think many people had doubts about India's ability to maintain governments for their full mm -hmm. terms. People had doubts about whether India's economy would ever really take off with higher rates of growth. And, and you kind of saw all this during those months. Uh, the fall of 1990 was a pretty chaotic time. What did, uh, what did your parents say when you called them up and said, you know, I'm not going to the UK for study abroad. I'm, I want to go to India. Well, I, I think they weren't thinking much about the UK. I mean, I think they thought uh, a college semester abroad program was great and interesting. And by the way, that particular program was not as expensive as a semester at Harvard. So there was a, a little advantage there. Um, but uh, more importantly, I think when I kind of stuck with India studies, South Asia studies and went on to graduate school, I think my parents were really worried that I'd never be able to find a job, to right. be quite honest. And I uh, recount that a little bit in the book as well. I mean, it, it, thankfully, uh, the world has changed and there's now an increasing level of interest in India and the Indian economy and where the country is going. So I have been gainfully employed. Um, but, you know, those, this was a different time 28 years ago. So to draw you out a little further uh, on what Rich has asked, I wonder if you can think back to that time. Yeah. 
and remember what was it like in the culture or the cuisine or the fashion or the uh, the politics that initially captured your attention and held your focus for these now nearly 30 years? I'd taken a couple classes uh, in college, and honestly, I really thought that to make the most of a semester abroad opportunity would really be uh, to challenge myself to experience something that I might not otherwise be able to experience. And I, and I really thought that spending a semester in Scotland or in Ireland or in Australia was not going to be as big of a challenge as a place that uh, just might be very different. And India was then still the world's largest democracy, um, a place of many different cultures, um, a place where you can, and even today, actually, to be honest, I feel like I never stop learning. I mean, every every day I sort of learn something new and think, oh my gosh, wow, I'd love to learn more about that. There's so many different regions. Uh, I, I just felt like India would be a pretty interesting place to study. You, you picked up language along the way as well. How hard was that? How did, how did you do that? Because most people just don't uh, pick up Hindi kind yeah. of randomly. <laughs> no, it's, it's well, the, the program that I went on had us all study Hindi um, as part of the, the course. Um, and then I continued with Hindi courses in college. It was taught as both Hindi and Urdu, a joint course. Um, and then I stuck with that in grad school. And I uh, did an, an American Institute of Indian Studies fellowship during the summer of 1992 in uh, Benares in Varanasi. It was really hot that summer. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, I also continued studying Urdu. I spent a year studying Urdu on a program that is no longer operating there, um, the Berkeley Urdu language program in Pakistan. I, so I spent a year in Lahore. Um, so I, I stuck with, I also studied Tamil for a year. Um, I was really not good at Tamil. It's a very, very difficult language. So I can, I can recognize a few letters to this day, but boy, is that a hard language. (laughs) But it must've been incredibly helpful in your study of South Asia and, and kind of, um, you could kind of operate seamlessly in the, uh, in the environment there. Are, are people surprised when people you break it People are usually surprised. Out? Yeah, I, I mean, so I'm not giving uh, speeches in parliament. I mean, my language skills lack some of the upper level vocabulary for me to be as articulate as I would like to be. And that's something that I always feel like I should keep working on. And I haven't been able to do that just simply due to time, but it should be a priority for me. Um, but it does help a lot, I have to say, and that's why I always encourage young people to make sure they've got some kind of language study because no matter what it is, I mean, and Hindi doesn't help everywhere in India. And there are many, many languages, you know, most people in India have at least two or three languages and some people have four or five. So uh, there's kind of no end to what you can keep trying to work on. It's great. Um, my Hindi maxed out at about the age of six, and um, so it's been a um, great disappointment for. Um, but did for you me. did your parents speak Punjabi they, at home? They did. They speak uh, spoke Punjabi and they spoke Hindi. Um, and my most interesting and, and horrifying experiences in India was when Prime Minister Modi asked me to translate a couple times for him when he was in, for example, after his joint address to the Congress and. Um, he realized it was going to be a complete catastrophe if I continued on translating <laughs> for him. So it was no surprise when I was leaving India. He said, you know, I really want you to study Hindi for an hour each day. Did he say that? He, wow. He did. Huh. Yeah, he had a very clear memory wow. of how bad it went. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, he, he speaks very formal Hindi, and yeah. it's not his first language, yeah. obviously. Gujarati is. I want to, I want to turn to the book, and I just, just the, the title, Our Time Has Come. What does that mean? Um, where did that come from? 
Thank you for asking that. Yeah. Uh, not everybody asks. Um, so this is a, a, a quote from both the current Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and the former most recent Prime Minister of India, Dr. Manmohan Singh. Uh, and they said this at different times in public addresses, but uh, it, in both occasions, they were really pointing to where they saw their own country in its ambitions and its place on the world stage. And that just really struck me, the idea that both gentlemen of parties that do not see eye to eye um, still have a kind of sense of convergence about where India should be, where its moment is, where India could be heading. Uh, and I thought that that was a really kind of illustrative phrase. So I feel like the, the phrase tells you something about where the country sees itself and where it thinks its moment is. Do you think they were um, accurate that the time has come or were they aspirational and trying to pull the society along with them? In other words, are they, you know, we, we keep talking yeah. about this this time and um, that's basically your book kind of yeah. takes this question on, you yeah. know, is this the Indian moment or... Uh, is it still at some point in the future? So I, I think India is now closer than it ever has been at, at, at any time in its in independent history to uh, attaining that uh, recognition of being a major power in the world system. And that has to do with a lot of different factors, not only the growth of the Indian economy, but also the way the world has changed, creating a much more multipolar environment than what the world was like throughout much of the 20th century. Um, but that said, it's also the case India continues to have many domestic challenges. Uh, despite its great economic growth, there's still much more to do at home. And I do think uh, that India continues to face a lot of hurdles, particularly in the multilateral governance space. That's where it's been very hard for India to gain access and entry membership in organizations that I think if you were to design a lot of these institutions today, India would be a natural member, but for arcane historic reasons, it's not. I think at separate times, the three of us have discussed the issue of APEC, Asia-Pacific yeah. Economic Cooperation Forum. I mean, it, it's hard. How, how, how can we, as, as Americans who believe generally in an idea of equality, look at the world order and understand a space in which Papua New Guinea is this year's summit host for APEC, and yet India's knocking on the door and still can't mm. gain that access. We get over these things, but the <laughs> maddest a senior person at the White House has ever been at me, literally called me out of a meeting to yell at me, and I had to hold the phone away from my ear, oh. was because of me saying that I thought India should be in more of these international institutions. So I want to ask you about that. So um, the book's terrific. I haven't gotten to the part yet where you describe the complexities of the relationship between the United States and India. And I wonder, given your experience, give us a sense, Alyssa, about how Indians, and I know that there's this is not um, a monolithic view, but how do the Indian um, elite view the United States as a natural partner with a degree of suspicion, um, with a sense that that there are limits to what can be accomplished, distrust about our strategic goals. Help us understand mm -hmm. that. Um, I, I do think it, it's not monolithic. And I think that we're seeing um, signs of generational change uh, on that front. 
Um, if you were to to look, let's say, 30 years ago, I think generally people would have viewed the United States with tremendous suspicion, suspicion about the choices that Washington made in the Cold War, choices that Washington made about its relationship with Pakistan, um, choices in 1971, for example, um, and the uh, uh, independence of Bangladesh amidst terrible bloodshed. The choice we made in that moment, I think, didn't live up to our values as Americans and trying to defend and protect um, democratic freedoms and human rights. It was a not a great moment for us. Um, lots of issues. Um, I think that that you've also seen over the course of decades a gradual shift in the way people in India perceive their own ties and interests. So it used to be that if people went to study abroad, they would go to Oxford or Cambridge or other schools in the in the UK. Um, you see a lot of people coming to the United States now, and I think as you see these younger generations who have had uh, uh, more familiarity with the United States are pretty comfortable with who we are, who feel less concerned about uh, the United States as a superpower looking to subordinate other countries. Uh, you see generations that are much more comfortable saying, hey, here's who we are and our interests, and we can defend our interests. Um, so I think you're starting to see people who are keen to have a deeper partnership with the United States, who don't uh, approach U.S. motives with some of the suspicions that you saw 25, 30 years ago. Um, but you still see a country that's very, very independent uh, and then is not willing to sign up for the types of alliance relationships we have with some of our other many allies and partners. So Alyssa, I must confess, when your book landed on my desk and I saw the title, I actually thought it was about another country. Um, China? Yeah, a country, <laughs> a country very nearby. How does uh, both strategically and in the Indian imagination, how does China affect their perceptions of their own trajectory, both what they can potentially accomplish as a leading nation, its relationship with the United States, and the kind of relation it, relationship it aspires to with Beijing. Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, it, you know, a lot of what is happening for India in the South Asia region and in the larger Indian Ocean space um, is, uh, I think, being spurred by the the changing dynamics across this entire Indo-Pacific, uh, larger Indian Ocean region. Um, I think I think for for some decades in the 20th century, obviously before the border war in 1962, there was an idea. Certainly, Nehru had an idea that there could be this partnership between Asia's two giants, these countries with you know enormous populations, both uh, coming out of moments of of poverty. Uh, I think now, particularly, I have to say, after I think the Beijing Olympics, kind of China's calling card to the world. Uh, I, I think people in India have realized that there has been such dramatic economic development in China over decades and that's come about through sustained high rates of economic growth. And I, I feel like we are now hearing a lot more within India uh, across parties about the urgency of trying to attain and sustain high rates of economic growth. So India can also deliver uh, greater levels of prosperity for, for their own citizens. Um, 
China has become much more uh, expeditionary, expansionist, uh, assertive, uh, particularly in the maritime space, as you know so well. Uh, and that has really spurred, I think, uh, a, a, a lot of soul searching in India about India's own ability to be influential in the South Asia region, uh, what's important to India, how India should further develop itself as a maritime power, kind of big questions about its own role in this Indo-Pacific region and how it should go about trying to consolidate it. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because um, there are these foreign policy priorities that India has and, and its ambitions, but it also has these domestic challenges that, that are getting better, but don't seem to go away, right? right? And they're wrestling with this global ambition versus the internal complexities. And it's maybe why we all have such difficulty uh, characterizing India as a middle power, rising power, global power, superpower to be. I mean, how are they reconciling that? And, and where, do, where do we see them on this trajectory? Yeah. Well, you've got many different voices in India. You've got many people who argue uh, that India should not be aiming for any sort of power status on the world stage while it has so many crucial hurdles to try to clear at home. Uh, and that's a, an important point. You've also got other people who are saying, no, this isn't, you know, we are and have been uh, a, a large major contributor to world order. We were one of the world's largest economies prior to colonization. Uh, we deserve to have that space once again. Um, there was the earlier Nehruvian approach to seek a kind of moral authority on the world stage, even acknowledging that there was so much work to do back home. Um, and now you see the kind of rise of India's business class where, you know, this is now emerging as one of the world's largest economies. If India overtakes the UK and France in terms of market exchange rate size of the economy by the end of this calendar year, as some estimates suggest it will, and we'll make India the world's fifth largest economy. It still will be with a per capita income of around $1,700 a year. Um, but it starts to put India in, in a different bracket than it has been. It's been the world's seventh largest economy for the last three years, uh, which is large. But that's very different somehow than being the world's fifth largest economy. And it starts to put India in a different space. So, so the question is, can India be looking to do more globally? while still trying to tackle problems at home. And or And do they want to do more globally? You know, there is this perception that uh, folks in the West have that uh, there is this free rider issue, that they want the benefits of the international system without kind of digging into the international system with all of its complexities. Is that a fair critique? Uh, I think, well, there are some specific arenas where you could say that's fair, particularly on some of the economic protectionism sets of questions. Uh, but I would say that you have seen, and again, this has happened over the course of the last two Indian governments, so it's not unique to the Modi government. Um, you've seen India's push to really modernize its military, uh, put resources towards modernizing and further developing its navy. Uh, it could be doing more. There's a huge debate in India about, for example, this year's Indian budget flatlined. Uh, it didn't increase the, the percentage of the budget that went towards defense. Uh, so as India looks to attain primacy, which has been its goal for the last decade across the Indian Ocean region, it really needs to have a strong navy. 
Um, I would also note that's been an area of terrific cooperation between India and the United States and India and Japan and India and Australia. Mm-hmm. So there's there's actually a positive story to tell here. But let me, let me just say one other thing. You know, everything that has happened in China over the course of the last 15 years with China's economic growth, it's kind of stepping out on the world stage as a major, major power, as, you know, its own vision of itself as a superpower. We don't talk anymore about the fact that there are about 30 million people still living in extreme poverty in China. Mm. You know, China has a lot of development work to do across more of the the interior and the Western region. Uh, But for whatever reason, those challenges, which are still significant, have not overshadowed what China has done on the world stage. And yet India has had a harder time managing this kind of perception issue where uh, I think the many hurdles and challenges have overshadowed what it is legitimately doing on the world stage and made it much harder for people to talk about India's role as a power as opposed to India's role as a, a sort of emerging power uh, with some distance to go in the future. Uh, that's fascinating. And we're talking a lot about that relationship between India and China, which really is going to be so important in the 21st century. I want, I want to talk about another bilateral relationship and um, one that you are uniquely uh, able to comment on given your own training and experience, and that's the relationship between India and Pakistan. Um, I, I was struck in my limited experience, I had a series of dialogues with the Indians about their strategic priorities in Asia. But over decades, when the subject of Pakistan has come up, I have never seen um, a degree of of, of such uh, uh, accented strategic distrust mm-hmm. between two countries. Absolutely. And now that China, now that India has really propelled itself forward, and Pakistan continues to struggle, where, where is this relationship heading? I have a hard time seeing improvement in the near term in the India-Pakistan relationship, and. Uh, I really, really think that the the secret to improve ties would be for Pakistan to come to terms with what it has not been able to accomplish and deliver for its own citizens, uh, and for Pakistan to cease allowing terrorist groups uh, to have refuge or incubate on Pakistani territory, and for Pakistan to focus on uh, delivering economic gains for its enormous population, which has great potential and could be doing so much more. I mean, uh, for me, the most interesting contrast is to look at Pakistan and Bangladesh. Bangladesh was East Pakistan until 1971. They Bangladesh does better than Pakistan on almost every human development indicator except for per capita income, uh, which means that Bangladesh has done all this while being poor. It has been resolutely focused on human development and on delivering uh, health, um, maternal and child health, um, economic growth, uh, employment opportunities. It's now become the world's second largest ready-made garment exporter. So you look at that contrast and think, uh, and by the way, Bangladesh has a much improved relationship with India. They, uh, a couple of years ago, resolved their longstanding more than 70-year uh, border challenges. It was the world's most complicated border with a whole bunch of islands of extraterritoriality across uh, each side. So uh, Pakistan has been fixated on this idea that at some point it should be a strategic rival or could somehow try to, to uh, best or be a, a rival to India. And 
And that's just not on the cards. It's so much smaller. It should be pursuing its own uh, uh, ideals and goals for its own population. So I really, really worry about this. It, it has not been able to focus itself. You've got a military that plays an outsized role in the economy, not allowing really the growth and flowering of a vibrant private sector. You've got, uh, you know, all the things that have gone well on that front for Bangladesh, you don't see in the same way in Pakistan. And so that focus and fixation on India, I think, has really been to the detriment of where Pakistan could head. Now, I'm sure people would say, well, she's being partisan and taking India's side. Well, I mean, I think after you see a country uh, have to suffer through so many terrorist attacks uh, and without honestly taking any kind of, of action against it, it you really start to think, well, what is happening between these two countries? They're both uh, nuclear weapons countries. Uh, they both see each other as uh, an enemy. This is a, not a great situation. I don't see kind of a near-term chance for improvement, precisely because you don't see in Pakistan a willingness to kind of look look towards a better future for itself. That's why I worry about that. Yeah, those are really important insights. back to the U.S.-India relationship. In the last chapter of your book, you lay out a, a number of recommendations. But there's a theme that runs through that chapter in your book, which is how do we get the attention of people in the United States about India, the American people, but also the U.S. government? Um, you, know, you, you just described <laughs> yeah. a country that is third largest military, uh, one of the top economies in the world, one of the most important countries in Asia. And things are going well, but it's not at the uh, kind of tip of our kind of thinking and strategy when we think about Asia or our global policy. How do you get our government to change course, and how do you uh, how do you get the American people more interested um, in India? Yeah, I, well, I hope that over time uh, we'll see much greater interest uh, in the United States more generally. Um, if I could take that piece of your question first, I, I write about that as a sort of challenge of the enabling environment. Mm -hmm. If you look at the statistics of uh, language enrollments, for example, it, it's not great for Indian languages. We, we've got about 3,000 enrollments as of the most recent data. Um, I, I always quote your statistic about the number of Americans that study in Costa Rica. Yeah. Twice the number go there than to India. Yeah. You know, uh, Costa Rica is beautiful. Costa Rica is a nice, nice a place. great place. Yeah, you, but... My husband and I took a vacation there a couple of years ago. <laughs> had a wonderful time. But I'd love to see as many Americans spend a study abroad experience, whether a year or a semester in India, as go to Costa Rica. Yeah, welcome to tea leaves, where, yeah. we, where we whine about not enough attention. So let, let, me, let me ask you how, uh, on that question. Yeah. Um, what about the diaspora? Um, what role are they beginning to play in political consciousness in the United States? My sense is that really Prime Minister Modi was really the first to really understand and to engage really actively with the diaspora community here in the United States. 
Um, how's that going to play out over time? Well, let me just note, I mean, I, th- I think you have seen over time uh, successive Indian governments engage the Indian diaspora. So what what the, the kind of Modi innovation seems to have been was doing this on the scale of Madison Square Garden or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a arena size events. But that's a big innovation. That's though. a big innovation. But you did see, for example, back in the late 90s, the previous um, uh, BJP-led government of India created something called the Resurgent India Bonds that were designed to allow non-resident Indians mm. to have a, an investment vehicle to help India's development. So that was an example of an Indian government saying, wait a minute, the diaspora could be a resource in helping India's own development story. Um and the UPA government, of course, engaged with members of the Indian diaspora across the world. But I, I do agree that the the kind of rock star arena thing is a, a quantum change, certainly in public perception, certainly in the kind of media attention to it. So, I mean, you know, Rich is a great example, the first Indian American ambassador to India. Um, You've seen Indian Americans become much more involved, uh, certainly in policy issues in the United States, now running for political office. There are a lot of people who have successfully run for office and a lot more candidates in the way. Um, I think you're underselling Rich's contributions to ice hockey and Pennsylvania. Yeah. I think that those are much better. What did I miss no. on the ice hockey? I didn't know. That was pretty. That's in our next episode of, uh, of Tea Leaves. Um, <laughs> but not field hockey. No, definitely not. He's okay. A, he's an ice hockey player. <laughs> But, you know, I do, you know, the contribution of the Indian diaspora, I think, is continuing to to call for the importance of having a focus on India, uh, the civil nuclear deal and the uh, engagement of the Indian American community with members of Congress around the 2005, 6, 7, 8 period uh, when there was legislation before Congress to pass the Hyde Act, for example. That's when you really saw a mobilization on a foreign policy issue. And I think it made a big difference. Um can India become a member of the Security Council without U.S. leadership in making that happen? I think U.S. leadership is central to seeing any kind of change in any of these institutions of global governance, whether it's the Security Council or APEC or Indian membership in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or even the International Energy Agency. And so I've written about all those. Now, saying that U.S. leadership is a requirement does not mean that it's sufficient. Mm -hmm. I think the world is sufficiently complex at this point that even if we were to really put our shoulder to the wheel, which I think we should, I think that's something the United States can and should do, uh, I'm not sure that we'd see an immediate change in the Security Council composition. Yeah, I, I like Rich's question, and I agree that an American role would be essential, but the Security Council is a far bridge. Yeah. I was always struck about why there was so much resistance about APEC. Um, Give us the argument about why India does not belong in APEC. It seems that, you know, if you look at it from a distance, they should be a charter member. I agree. And, and it's yeah. not as if, it's not as if, you know, what goes on there on the economic plane is beyond them. So what's, what's, right. what's the theory of the case here, Alyssa? So the theory of the case, as best I understand it, and like you, I frankly don't understand the objections. Uh, the theory of the case here is that India is a difficult negotiating partner and one that is willing to break consensus. India has been willing to break consensus in global trade uh, environments. The 
2008 collapse of the Doha round or uh, the Bali trade facilitation agreement debacle in the summer of 2014. So I think I think people who are embedded in the trade world see India as a country that might, uh, upon membership into APEC, might make it hard to attain consensus on things. I look at that and I think this is not even a negotiating platform. This is a place where people get together and they talk about how to increase freer trade and investment. They come up with new ideas like trade facilitation or green goods or things like this. And they come up with action plans about how they're going to make it easier to enable trade and investment. It seems to me all the kinds of things that we would want to make sure that India is on board with and doing with us. I know you agree. I want to ask you about the the book. And you've been all around India. You've been all around Asia now. You've been to Australia. You've been around the United States. What kind of reaction are you getting? And uh, what's it what's it been like? It's been fun. Um, I've done a number of different types of uh, discussions. I've had some on university campuses. Um, I've had some really fun events with um, Indian diaspora groups. Mm -hmm. um, I have been in the Midwest of the United States. I've been in three cities in India. And so it's been a little bit different in every place. But And I will say what's been interesting to see is what people found useful to them from the book. So, for example, in Mumbai, somebody told me that he thought the historical sections were really valuable and the most interesting to him. Mm -hmm. um, in some other contexts, people have thought that the recommendations for U.S.-India ties are the most interesting. Uh, at one of the events, uh, a terrific event that the Indus Entrepreneurs did, it was so much fun, um, that conversation was a lot more focused on some of the personal aspects and, you know, where we and India can head together and uh, the engagement of the diaspora on that front. So um, it's been fun to have all these different conversations in different places. I actually now next week start a lot more U.S. domestic travel. So I'm going to Birmingham, Alabama great. on the 17th of April and then Atlanta and Miami and then out to the West Coast and then up to Boston. So. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see see what people emphasize in those conversations, too. So, Alyssa, if you could have one Indian meal before you went to an APEC meeting, uh, tell us what it would be. What is it that you love about Indian cuisine? Where would you go? What would you eat? So uh, I was just uh, most recently in Bangalore and had this fantastic Chetanad lunch wow. of uh, Chetanad pepper chicken with uppums. You know, the, they're sure. like, uh, yeah, exactly. Rich. Yeah. Fantastic. You can't get this in the United States. Or if you can, it, it's hard to get to. There's actually a Chetanad place up in Rockville. I was just going to say Rockville Rock place is your <laughs> yeah. place to go. They don't take reservations at yeah. that place. So there's always a long line of about 45 minutes and you have to walk around and go to the grocery store while you wait. Uh, but yeah, th that is such good cuisine. But, you know, there's so many different kinds of cuisine. I love Punjabi cuisine, like real Punjabi cuisine, like the mustard greens and the um, corn rotis, the sarsam de sag and maki di roti. It's really good. That's, Hard to get here. Should be another chapter of the book or perhaps the next, uh, next iteration of the book. You know, I've always thought it would be interesting, and maybe somebody has written a cookbook about this, but sort of uh, Indian cuisine before the encounter with the new world. Because <laughs> it go. would be Chetanad food. Food, right? No chilies, no tomatoes. Like, something really interesting about that. Well, I think I actually think your book is really um, going to be the go-to reference uh, for the modern day on on India, and your recommendations on U.S. India should be a blueprint. I think for people who 
who work in this field. So I, I just want to congratulate you, uh, for, you for what you've done, not just for this book, but for really uh, several decades of work in this area. And uh, it's Thank been you. terrific. That's so nice. Thanks. Thanks so much for having read the book and, uh, and inviting me to join you today. I mean, what a nice opportunity. Yeah, so the book is called Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. Go out and pick it up now. And uh, Alyssa, thank you again. And thank you all for listening. Uh, please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you, Tea Leaves. Tea Leaves.